So I'm here in D.C. with Mark Ludwig. Tell me about yourself, Mark. Uh, well, I got started in this community, if you will, uh, basically like a lot of other people. I, uh, after my son was born, uh, his mother took him. It took me 204 days to get access to him. And uh, it was something you would never wish on anyone at all. And uh, then about another year of a court battle to get my six overnights a month visitor. And I just felt like my son deserves more than a, a every other weekend visitor, if you will, with his dad. And uh, so I started connecting with other fathers across the country, even though it's, it affects both genders, but primarily it affects men at a little higher ratio. So started finding out that this was happening to other people and uh, started working. In the past, I'd worked on legislation. I'd been very involved in politics in Missouri for years and just finally decided that, you know, why don't I start recultivating some of my old political connections and see if I can start working on getting some legislation passed. So was able to, to team up with some other people in Missouri that had already started working on that and figure out how could I combine my political connections with what they had already started working on. And we had some pretty good success. The first year out of the shoot uh, passed HB 1667, uh, primarily with the other people that were on the team. Like I said, the main thing I helped with was some connections with some key and, people. And, and what is that house bill? Uh, HB, uh, I'm sorry, it was HB 1550 that we passed in 2016. That one was what we had hoped to pass was what is known as a 50-50 rebuttable presumption. Uh, that so that means when I get a divorce, it's a presumption that both parents get half time. Exactly. Ba basically, from the child's perspective, that a child should still have equal access to both parents after divorce or separation. Now, it's rebuttable based on eight determining factors that basically to determine is a, a parent fit, willing, or able. Because we want judges to still have some discretion. But the starting point from the child's perspective should always be if those parents were qualified parents the day before the divorce, how did they all of a sudden one parent was a superior and one's the inferior yeah. after the divorce? Yeah. So the goal is for the child's benefit, that child should have an equal relationship with both parents, subject to the judge having some discretion to determine are they fit, willing, or able. But the presumption should be that starts at a 50-50. Now, we weren't able to get that the first year out of the shoot, but what we got was a very good bill, actually. Uh, it's called Written Facts, Findings, and, and Conclusions. So what it says is a judge doesn't have to start at 50-50, but if they don't, they have to give written documentation as far as why did they not give that based on those eight determining factors. Uh, up right. until that point, a judge could basically say you get every other weekend not have to give any reasoning, which means you can't appeal that case. There was nothing written to be able to appeal. So it was, not, it was set in stone. Exactly. So it, it forces the judge that now the judges have to write down how did they arrive at their decision. And as a result, it swung the, it's not near 50-50, but it swung the pendulum in a big way. So statistically, 90% of the time, women are going to get the children 27 days a month in this country. Exactly. So. In, in Missouri, what's the percentage now as far as um, if I had a person sit in every single family court in Missouri, what percentage are- Yeah, what are, I've, and I don't have the exact numbers with me, but I believe I before the bill passed, it was around four overnights a month was the average in the state of Missouri. And from what I've heard, it's somewhere it's moved to around seven to eight nights a month now is now the average. So, so it's, it's, it's made- You've made some progress. Yeah, we have a lot- a lot farther to go, but that was a huge improvement for the benefit of the kids. And, and that's what I've always believed is, this isn't about mothers or fathers, it's about a kid. Yeah. And everything should be focused on, as you know, all the, the uh, fatherless statistics. You take one parent out of a child's life, you know, that, that's, you've just totally destroyed their security. 
So it's so critical well, that we keep that relationship their life outcome. together. You destroy their life outcome. Exactly. That's the issue. So what is your history in Congress, and then how did it lead you to the Americans for Equal Shared Parenting? Yeah, well, I started working politically about 30 years ago, uh, active helping different candidates run for office. Uh, I've worked on dozens and dozens of successful campaigns in Missouri and actually national campaigns too. Fortunately, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of connections as a result on the conservative side, but as I always say, this isn't a Republican or a Democrat issue. And if your belief is that a child should have equal access to both parents, you need to drop the party politics. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat. I don't care if you hate Donald Trump. I don't care if you hate Obama. Whoever the president is, we're gonna to need to work with him. Whoever is governor of your state, you need to work with him. Whoever is the chair or the speaker of the house of, of your uh, state legislature, you need to work with him. So I just happen to have a lot of connections on the conservative side. So I finally decided, why don't I put some of my connections to work and try helping the state of Missouri. Then I started realizing, obviously I have some connections all over the country. So why don't I put some of those connections to help other people? And when I started getting involved, what I, I always have uh, had the philosophy that you need to be a student before you can be a leader. So the first year I got involved, for the most part, I was pretty much a student, trying to figure out the lay of the land. What organizations are out there? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses of the people in the cause? Because just like on a, on a football team, you're gonna have strengths and weaknesses. Find out, okay, if a team already has a very good quarterback, you probably don't wanna try it for the quarterback position. That position is taken. Right. Find out where are the gaps on the team. And so for a year, I tried to figure out, okay, where are things already in place? Where could I add some value to the movement? And I finally realized there was sort of a gap in sort of a connector organizations. All across the country, we've had, you know, I estimate around 800 organizations right now, if you add up all the smaller organizations across the country. And each has their own little idiosyncrasies. Some specialize on an issue. Uh, some are geared more to, to, to men. Some are geared more to women. Some to grandparents. Some are focusing on shared parenting. Some focus on the silver bullet. Some focus on um, uh, child support issues. So there's about 800 different organizations. And unfortunately, what's happened up until now is so many organizations try and have one person in their group that's a research person, one person that's the legislative uh, negotiator, if you will, one person that writes the bills, one person that's the, you know, the door opener. And I thought, why do we need 800 organizations all basically doing the same thing? Right. Why couldn't we figure out how to get these organizations working together? And unfortunately in the past, I think a lot of organizations have almost felt a little bit of a threat. And I think I understand why. Anytime you start an organization, you've got some pride and there's nothing wrong, that's, that's not a bad thing. You've put some time, some effort, some energy into starting an organization. You don't just wanna say, I'm just gonna give my group up and merge it with another group. So what I decided is why not instead of trying to compete with any groups, why don't I become the connector? So my goal with Americans for Equal Shared Parenting is not to be the group, but to figure out what are the strengths of all the 800 groups out there. And if we have, like in Missouri, we've got Jeremy Roberts that I believe is the single best person in the entire country at writing legislation. So why can't we have Jeremy give some advice to all these other groups when they're wanting to write a bill? We've got other great organizations out there that are great at research. And so instead of having everybody do all these things, why can't, so that's the goal of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. We're a connector. My goal is to educate, empower, and enable all the other organizations around the country to figure out how can I take some of the resources and connections I have in Washington and in all the other state legislatures 
and not, I won't be the one that passes the legislation. I'm gonna give the resources to all the 50 state organizations so they can take it and run. And I'm just basically a big resource center for everyone. What were some of the most important, or what is the most important thing you learned in the process of fighting for your son's rights? Um, I think the most important thing from a movement standpoint is to take a step back. So many people, they get emotional because when, when, what hap when you go through the ordeal that all of us have been through, there's so much emotion attached to your personal story. And most of us, when we start out, we want to tell our personal story. And I see that all the time. When I've, This year I was involved in 17 states where we had different legislation involved. And every Senate hearing I went to, there were parents who would show up that wanted to tell their personal story and get into an hour dissertation of what happened to them. And I respect their passion and, and what went through. The challenge is a legislator doesn't have time to listen to eight hours of people telling, in their mind, the same story. Yeah. Even though, obviously, it, it hits each of us personally. From their perspective, it can be pretty much summarized as you went from being a parent to being a visitor in your child's life, and this needs to be changed. Yeah. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is people get so much emotion in, and when you're telling your personal story, it's very hard to communicate to a legislator because there's so much emotional charge in what you're talking about, you're not talking rationally. And what legislators want to hear is, what needs to be changed, not how did it affect you and, and the personal hurt in your life. So what I encourage people to do is, and this is very hard, but don't get involved in the legislation early on. And when you do, try as much as you can to not tell your personal story. Try to focus on the issue and what needs to be changed. You'll need to talk a little bit about your story, but try and do it in a bullet point type form where there's not the emotion charge. Yeah. And because I've seen a lot of our legislation across the country where unfortunately fathers who meant well, and I believe in their heart, they well, meant to testify. A, a lot of them come off as tinfoil hat, angry, mad people. But the issue is that when you have your child stolen from you and you're, and you're the stay-at-home dad, you raise your children, and now you get to see them four days a month. That is terrible. Exactly. It's a, it's a human travesty, all because these laws are set this way. I understand, I get it, it's unbelievably hard. But the issue is, if you come off like you're a tinfoil hatter, it's not gonna get anywhere. Exactly, and I see that all across the country. And like you said, I, I understand where, where people are coming from when yeah. they do that. Unfortunately, it's not conducive to getting legislation passed. So I always tell people, if you can, summarize your story. If you're talking about your story for more than 30 seconds, literally 30 seconds is it with a legislator, you've talked too long about your personal story. So explain to me, you talk a lot about the foot in the door. Explain the foot in the door. Um, the, the big key is, is trying to get past the gatekeeper. It, you know, most state, most state reps have anywhere between 1,000 and 4,000 bill ideas that are presented to them, depending on how long. In Missouri, our legislature's in session basically four, four and a half months. In a four and a half month period of time, legislators are hit with a, a minimum of 1,000, sometimes 4,000 bills in four months, or potential bills. Now, most of those won't become bills, but they don't know that. So they're having to study all these ideas and concepts. There's just not enough time in the day. So what do they do? They rely on relationships that they've built and people that they trust, just like anyone else. You know, if you're wanting to, to get some advice, you're normally gonna take the advice of a close trusted friend who you've known for 20 years over a stranger. Yeah. And so if I'm a state rep and I don't have time to research all these different bills, I'm gonna call somebody that I know 
that has a, you know, an awareness of that issue and say, hey, what are your thoughts on this bill or this issue that I've heard of? What we need is people to have their foot in the door where they've got the relationships with the legislators. So, because most things, you have two things going for you. Number one, are you worthy of talking to a legislator? And what is your bill about? Can you convey the message of that? We need the first part covered. Yeah. Do you have a relationship somehow that when you pick, when they pick up the phone or, or you call them or they see your name on a list of people to potentially call, do they know what that name means? Or are you just one of the 8,000 people calling them that year? So getting a foot in the door is somehow building a relationship with legislators mm -hmm. that when you pick up the phone, they know who you are. Right. And uh, that's what I was working on. I've been in D.C. for a few days here making connections with uh, literally the Trump administration, the uh, vice president of the United States. I'll be meeting with one of his main political advisors Tuesday. And, and we finally made it now at the national level past their initial gatekeeper. Now we still have a long way to go. But uh, to start the dialogue on Title IV and why do we need to change this funding formula? Because we can get all the statewide legislation passed that we want. But if yeah. we don't change what's created the problem, the incentives nothing's going to gonna it, happen. It's all about the incentives to make this happen. Yeah. And the I, government I, gives big money. To, I mean, the federal government gives big money to collect child exactly. support. Exactly. That's the problem. And I have literally talked to, I have literally talked to Speaker of the Houses, judges, lawyers, countless politicians. And the ones that understand it basically say, no, we don't want 50-50 because Texas alone gets a billion dollars in funding from Title 4D. Exactly. They would lose their funding. And, and in most states, the funding basically by, you know, bypasses the main state budget. So it goes directly to the counties for them to do whatever they want with the money. And just like any other social program, a lot of times they start out with a very, very good intention. Unfortunately, there's some creative people in this country that have figured out, well, there's free federal money. Let's figure out what we're going to do with it. Yeah. And, and it doesn't go for the, near, the real purpose. Yeah. The real purpose was normally meant because there were some, some you know, primarily fathers back then. And because you know, back 50, 40 years ago, normally the father was the primary breadwinner. And if they'd been married for, say, 10 years and the wife had been a homemaker, it would be very hard for her to all of a sudden overnight, if they got a divorce, go out and get a job, make the right. same income. Right. So they set up the initial program with a very good intent of making sure the child was still cared for. Uh, unfortunately, times have changed. And now women are able to earn a lot more. And if we have 50-50, there's normally going to be a fairly close lifestyle to where the point where one, you know, the father takes care of their expenses while the child's with them, the mother expenses while they're with them. And uh, you know there may be some variations if there's an extreme difference in income, but for the most part, there's not going to be the ex extremes That's for right. most so people. Because parental alienation, one of the big keys for parental alienation is a large capital exchange, a lot of dollar exchange. It can cause a lot of friction, a lot of problems. When I was in Minnesota shooting, they use what's called a, a child support checkbook, a child support account, yeah. where they actually measure the cost of what the child's using. And they recommend a 50-50. Why didn't recommend a 50-50? Because all the social science, not a little bit, all the social science says the best life outcome for children other than an intact family is to run a cooperative maximum parental involvement. Exactly. And when you use a child support account, you measure the actual cost. Because moms say, well, you don't understand what it costs to raise a child. And dads say, I'm not paying for your nails and BMW payment. Right? Yeah. And both have validity to that on some level. But what you're looking at is you decrease the animosity, you stop putting kids in the middle, and you work to parent your children together. 
because you see the real expenses and you help them out together. Yeah. And that's, and that's where I think this 50-50 rebuttable presumption, because right now, uh, attorneys try and instigate that adversarial relationship. You know, I honestly believe in my heart, 80% of these problems would go away. If parents knew going in, we've got a high probability we're both going to get 50-50. So why not, instead of spending the college fund on attorney fees, why don't we go ahead and just figure out how are we going to parent together? And, and instead, what we have is because, this, as you know, attorneys make their money on billable hours. Yeah. So just like any other business person, you want to figure out how can you increase a revenue stream. So not that they're, uh, some people say they're unethical, but from a business standpoint, their attitude is, I need more billable hours. Yeah. So if a client comes to them, they're not going to say, hey, let's, let's figure out the best way for you to settle because we can get your case over quick because they're going to earn less money. Right. As a business person, their attitude is, I'm an attorney. I'm going to show you the best way to fight that adversary over there yes. and rack up billable hours. And I've talked to so many parents, as you probably have too, that say, I would have easily given 50-50. And then I walked into my attorney, and my attorney had me so riled up at my ex that I was going for full now. I wanted to fight. That's exactly what happened with a legislator that I interviewed in a Minneapolis legislature. It was amazing. That exact story happened to him. And that's why Minneapolis, once I think they want to pass House Bill 305 or 302, it's basically a no lawyer mediated out of court divorce. Because their yeah. number one, their number one complaint amongst all the reps, the number one complaint amongst all the reps is how broken the family court system is. Yeah, it's it's just become an absolute mess. So that's why we're really working on trying to get these shared parenting bills passed. I'm still just amazed that people haven't risen up and realized how horrible this is to realize that all across America, in 82% in of the cases, a father is gonna be relegated to basically an every other weekend. And I give people an example. Imagine if you went to the Super Bowl and just before the game starts, they pop up 83 points for one team and 17 points for the other team. Who would oh. wanna watch that game? Mm -hmm. And yet this isn't a game. This is kids' lives that we're yes. talking about. It needs to start at 50-50, at zero for both teams. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of this 83%, 17% scenario it's, that we have. It's all based on your plumbing or all based on your underwear. That seems like a wild, <laughs> wild violation of the Equal Protection Clause. It just yeah. seems really broken in every facet. Yeah. And the, the, the only two opponents we have is usually the Bar Association is going to come up with an analogy. They're going to say, well, you're going to take away judicial discretion. Uh, no, we're not. We're just saying, let's start the thing at zero, zero, so well, that the child should have equal access to both parents. Yes, it's about equal access. Here's the other problem. In, in 45 states around the country, we have 27 days for a heterosexual woman. We have four days for a heterosexual man. We have 15 days for LGBT. What are we saying? That the homosexual dad is a better parent than the heterosexual dad, and the heterosexual mom is a better parent than the lesbian mom. That's not gonna yeah, fly. Yeah, I never thought of it that That's way. That's not gonna fly. Yeah. We need gender equality, and this is not that. We need laws for 2020, not 1920. Thank you very much, Mark. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you.